Good morning, church. Glad to see you here today. Welcome to everyone watching online. So glad to see all of you. I wonder if you have ever, or if you can think of a time in your life where you have ever gone against good advice. When I was uh, in the summer before ninth grade, I went on a mission trip with our church youth group. And my mother wanted me to take a foam pool raft to sleep on. I could not believe she would even suggest such a thing. In all my 13-year-old wisdom, I knew you could not look cool carrying around a foam pool raft. And so I refused. How could she even bring that up? And so I spent the week sleeping on linoleum next to several kids on pool rafts. (laughs) And the good that came out of that was that I I learned, not all the way by any means, but but, um, at least a little bit, to listen to my parents' advice. But I wonder if you've ever gone against good advice and had to learn from it later. My guess is that there are some doozy stories uh, out there. But uh, in our Old Testament passage from 1 Samuel, the Israelites go against good advice. Now, we are going to spend the next three weeks in our lectionary passages from 1 Samuel. Uh, This week, we're talking about Israel rejecting God as king. Uh, Next week, we'll see the boy, David, uh, chosen and anointed as king. And in two weeks, we're going to look at the famous story, of David and Goliath. And you might be thinking, like, why? <laughs> why are we doing that? Well, we approach, of course, the Old Testament as Christian scripture. And there's a good chance that some of us have not read 1 Samuel in a while, so it's good to hear it and to understand again. But more than that, I think, these passages really uh, talk through the infancy of the Israelite monarchy. It's the establishment of the office of uh, king over God's people. And this is important for us today because Jesus is the king of kings because he is the perfect fulfillment of the office of king over God's people. A major piece of who we understand Jesus to be as our king is established in these readings. And so the aim of the sermons uh, over the next three weeks, not simply to make ancient history interesting. I hope it is. But the aim will, of course, be, like every sermon, to help us all grow in our walk with Jesus. However, it may be helpful, just as we begin the series, to fill you in a little bit on the history. So from the time that Israel left Egypt with Moses and entered the Promised Land with Joshua, they were not ruled by kings. But they were sort of overseen by what they called judges. And God would raise these judges up one at a time to serve. The closest thing we have today really is sort of like a sheriff. Like a sheriff. I mean, and some were definitely better than others. The people did not have a centralized government. They lived in tribal communities. But what bound them together was their common identity as God's people 
in God's promised land. God was their king. Now, the practice of their faith and the sincerity of their faith, that came and went up and down, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But God was their king. They were God's people in God's promised land. But when the people had disputes, when they needed an army organized to go and fight the Philistines or the Moabites, they would go and see whoever was the judge. Now, you might remember some of the names of the judges. uh, Samson, Deborah, Gideon, famous uh, Sunday school Bible names. But our passage this morning picks up, it's a little over 3,000 years ago, about 400 years after the Exodus. And people, the people are saying they do not want this system of judges anymore. They want a king, just like the other nations have. Now, the judge at that time was Samuel. And Samuel, as you may know, was a prophet. He was a good and wise and godly leader. But in his old age, it seems that he had done something that was um, unwise, or at least it didn't work out. And that was that he appointed his own sons to be judges, uh, sort of under judges, uh, sub-judges under him. And, And as far as I can tell, this was unique in the history of Israel, because it was always God who raised up the judges. But Samuel appointed the judges. And it did not go well. Samuel was good and just, but these sons of Samuel were known to render judgments according to whoever was the highest bidder, undercut the whole system of justice. And so people are looking down the line, right? They can see the future. They can see that when Samuel dies, these are going to be the guys that they're left with. And so they do what you did in that time. They went to see the judge. They went to see Samuel. But rather than ask Samuel to remove his sons from this office, I mean, that might have been a little awkward. But they didn't wait for God to raise up the next judge. They took matters into their own hands, and they called for a total system overhaul. They wanted a king. Other nations around them have a king. Why can't they have a king? We want a king. And if you think about it, it actually makes some sense. I mean, there is some logic in their request, with a traditional king, as opposed to a divine king, you have a person that you can see who is making the decisions. With a traditional king, you have a human that you can blame or complain to when things go wrong. With a traditional king, you have a motivated person because he uh, benefits from the prosperity of the people, and he stands to lose everything if the people are defeated. Whatever the cost was going to be to the people to submit to an earthly king, you still had a king whose job it was to prosper and to protect the people. Now, this desire, as you can see, this desire for a king seems to have been rooted in some jealousy. The nations around them had kings, and so they had a lot of what I've just described. They had some certainty. They had some security. And yet what is clear from Samuel's response, and even clearer from God's response, is that the problem with this request for a king is not political, it's theological. It's theological. God says they are not rejecting 
Samuel as judge, or even his sons, which would have been reasonable, they are rejecting God as their sovereign. They're rejecting God as their king, as their protector, as their general. And Samuel, good prophet that he is, Samuel is crushed by this request. But God kind of just shrugs and says, I'm used to it. I'm used to it. They, they do this all the time. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, every time I offer them a pool raft, they choose the linoleum. And sometimes they cry out about their sore back, and i got to swoop in with some sort of mattress. But other times they just lie there stubbornly and say, I like it like this. What God is saying is that this rejection of him is not new. It is characteristic. Rejection of him is characteristic. The well-known theologian Walter Brueggemann writes, This request for a king is just one more step in that continuing performance of mistrust. And even when they hear from Samuel the warning about all the freedoms that they're going to have to give up in order to be subject to an earthly king, they still prefer that servitude to the messiness of walking by faith and trusting God. The Israelites go against good advice. Now, I think that we can probably agree that God's perspective is, by definition, the right perspective. And from God's perspective, the preference for a human king is, for the Israelites, a rejection of God. But I think that we can also look at our own lives. And we can look at the world around us and sort of understand where these rebellious Israelites are coming from. I mean, not to say they were right, but to say that we know ourselves that it is hard to trust God, especially when the future looks scary. And so what do we do in those situations? We look to surrogate gods very often, things that feel more certain, things that feel more controllable. You know, Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. And people do some crazy things, sometimes horrifying things in the service of these lesser gods. These Israelites, they looked at their future political landscape and they went rogue. And they just, they took matters into their own hands. Listen, I think we can, I think it's safe to say that the same thing happens today, doesn't it? And not just on the opposite side of the political aisle from you. (laughs) Faithful people do unfaithful things. All the time, right? In ways both large and small, in thought, word, and deed, by things done and left undone, politically, religiously, relationally, legally, morally. I have many times, and so have you. You know, I like to think that this rebellion happens a little less often in my life than it did after... uh, 31 years of following Christ actively. My family might raise an eyebrow at that suggestion. Are these elders of Israel hypocrites for calling for a human king like the other nations? Maybe. But I think they're being human. 
Theologically speaking, the human condition is to choose our own will over the will of God. They say to Samuel, we are determined to have a king over us so that we may be like the other nations. And what God does, I think, is amazing. He says to Samuel, give them what they're asking for. Listen to their voice. Give them what they want. I can remember vividly a, a colleague of mine in Birmingham uh, when he said in a sermon once, Lord, help us if we get everything we want. <laughs> a lot of truth in that. So there's a sense in which God's permission of this request for a king, that his permission is condemning. Right? You, you're going to reap what you sow. Like when a parent lets a child that they love make a bad decision so that they will learn. Okay, don't take the pool float. Like, we'll see what happens. God's not being passive-aggressive. We can imagine, I think, how the judgment of God can simply be to let the rebellion play out. In this case, the elders of Israel, they're actually threatening Israel's status as God's chosen and covenant people. They want to be like the other nations. But God didn't have covenants with the other nations. Those nations aren't the chosen people. They're demand, by demanding a king, they're eating the apple all over again. They're removing themselves out from other, under God's kingship. And so in one sense, the people will be condemned by their own determined choice. But there is also a sense, at the same time, under God's amazing and complex sovereignty, a sense in which God's granting the people what they want in their rebellion is incredibly gracious. It's incredibly gracious. Because God is going to let them make the choice, but God is not going to let them go. And they've broken their end of the covenant deal, but God's not letting his end of the deal down. And St. Paul wrote to the Romans, that famous line, Romans 8.28, that all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And somehow, in His majesty, in His mystery, God takes both the good and the bad. He takes both the rebellion and the obedience, the good choices and the bad choices, the faithful seasons and the unfaithful seasons, and He works it all for the good the children that he loves. So in this case, God takes the rebellion of his people and grants them the desire of their sinful hearts. And in doing so, he establishes the monarchy of Israel and with it the principle that the king of Israel must always be subject to the word of God and the will of God as it is conveyed in the prophets. Now, of course, there'd be faithful kings and unfaithful kings. None of them was perfect. But God would tell King David. Now we're going to meet King David next week as a boy. And when we look at that passage. But God would promise the second king, King David, that his descendant was going to be on the throne over God's people forever. And in a way that only God could orchestrate, God himself would be that king in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself would place himself as the king over his people once again. But in fulfillment of the 
the kingship that the people were demanding for. And Jesus Christ, as the king, he would fulfill that ancient promise by living a life of perfect faithfulness to the word of God and the will of God. And then he would take the consequences of our rebellion upon himself by dying on the cross. And then, having paid the price and reconciled us to the God against whom we rebelled, he rose again to offer us eternal life. And so, church, here's what I want you to know today. Three things, very quick. Number one, life is hard. That's not new news, is it? Life is hard. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes we go against good advice. Sometimes we sin with determination. In fact, that's, that's why you're here today, right? I mean, you don't come here for affirmation. You go to Starbucks for that. You come here for absolution. To hear again and again that you're forgiven. Life is hard. Number two, God is incredibly gracious. Because you and I are not defined by our sin, our rebellion, or our stubbornness, or our choices. We are defined by His mercy. We're defined by His mercy. Somehow, He works it all out for our ultimate and eternal good. The highs, the lows, the good and the bad, the hard seasons and the smooth seasons. So life is hard and God is gracious. And finally, the third thing. Jesus is the king that we need. Jesus is the king we need. Rebel though we might, Jesus is the king that we are made to love, the king that we are made to serve. Not because he laid down the law, because he laid down his life. Life is hard. God is gracious. Jesus is the king we need.